0: Well that was pretty cool. Right? It's kind of an interesting way to worship the Lord through through art. <clears throat> Go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. We've been walking through the book of Ephesians. And last week we were introduced to our first spiritual blessings. First spiritual blessing that's listed in the passage. Two weeks ago. We learned what the purpose of the spiritual blessings that we receive in Christ, what what their purpose is. And the purpose of these spiritual blessings we receive is that it would induce in us worship. That it would cause us to be worshipers. That God has done some things for us, given us gifts, and what it is supposed to do in us is produce in us a person who is praising God. The purpose of this is that we would be to praise His glorious grace. That we would praise Him, that we would praise Him, that we would praise Him. This morning, we're going to look at the spiritual blessing of redemption and forgiveness. I'm going to read the passage. Read it with me if you would. You can just look at it. Read long. I'll read out loud. You can read silently. Verse 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, and all wisdom. And insight. There's our verses. We have redemption and forgiveness. Now, what these two words are going to do for us is it's going to open up a couple of different paradigms. It's going to open up for us uh, an image of those who need to be redeemed. So, it's going to show us some things about us, about humanity. Because if there's a redemption, it means there's a group of people who need to be redeemed. Right? So if there's a redemption, that means there's a purpose for redemption, there's a need for it. And so it's going to show us about us, and then it's going to show us about the redeemed, show us some things about the redeemer. Because if there are those who have been redeemed, then that means that there is a redeemer. And we see in Christ, we have redemption, and then we have the forgiveness of our sins. If we need to be forgiven, that means that we have actually sinned. And so it's going to show us again about ourselves, and then it's going to show us about the forgiver. Now, this is going to kind of split the Bible open for us. As we look at at redemption and as we look at forgiveness, we're going to jump a few places in the Bible because we want to see that this is, again, a consistent theme, that these spiritual blessings are not simply isolated in the book of Ephesians, but it's a part of a grander scheme in the whole Bible as the Bible teaches us about redemption and forgiveness. And so the first one we're going to look at is redemption. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption. So what does this tell us? About us? What does it tell us about us? And we need to do some work here because uh, if we don't know the gravity of the mess that we were in, if we don't know the gravity that the world is in, then the redemption is not going to be, again, it's not going to be that big of a deal. But if we know what we've been redeemed out of, then we're going to be very, very thankful for it. It's going to produce praise in us. Two weeks ago, I was driving home from St. Louis and I got a ticket. Okay? I didn't have the appropriate tag. Apparently once a year, you're supposed to spend $100 and get a tag. And in my laziness, I did not do it. And it was wrong. Uh, Who likes paying for those tags? I can't stand it. Um, So I got pulled over and it was a $125 ticket. And of course, you know, it's like your gut sinks to your toes. You know, it's like setting $125 on fire. It just poof, especially when you give it to the state of Illinois, who knows where it goes. and so, that, there's $125 gone, you know, you call your wife, you sheepishly, baby, I got a ticket. Think, Dang it, you know, well, why didn't you have the tag? Well, because I was lazy and I didn't get the tag. Okay, so you go through that whole thing. Well, I, um, I go and get my tag, and I called up there, and they said, what, you tell me the process? They said, oh, you know what, just fax that in. You'll just fax that in. Uh, we'll just waive the ticket. Now, I'll tell you, in that moment, even though it was only $125 penalty, when I found out that that ticket was going to be thrown away and I didn't have to pay that $125, I was happy. I was very happy. Has anybody got a ticket dismissed before? <laughs> it's hard to explain how happy that makes you, but I mean, the joy that just overflows. <laughs> Thank you. God, what a blessing, you know, like that is just such a huge thing. Um, something was pardoned, okay? That, that, there's joy that comes with that, and so that's what we get to look at this morning. So Redemption. So we need to understand the mess that we're in. And we need to understand the human predicament. The human predicament that makes redemption necessary. The story starts in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to move pretty quickly. So if you just want to write these down, you can. And you can write these down maybe if you want on the back of these invitation cards. And I forgot to make an announcement. In each one of these seats, you have three invitation cards. And so... um, you know the, the catchier phrase than each one reach three is each one reach one. That's a catchier phrase, but we have three, so each one reach three. How about that? Okay, invite three people to come and join us. How about that? You can maybe write some notes on the back of the, back of that. That's okay, um, if you would like. Uh, and number one, the human condition, the human predicament, starts actually with an incredible amount of beauty. It starts in Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter one, verse thirty one. We hear a declaration from God over the created order and over the pinnacle of creation, which is humanity, and that declaration over humanity is, behold, it is very good, that they are very good. Adam and Eve were created as equal image bearers of God, and God declared over them that they were very good. This is where we find that the created order, in general, it starts off good. It was beautiful and right in the way God intended it to be. You are very good. That's the human condition at the very beginning. But something happens, and this declaration over humanity begins to change. Because the declaration at first is, Behold, you are very good. But something different comes from God uh, after Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we find that humanity, through Eve and Adam... Adam, being right there with her, sinned against against God and broke the command that God gave them in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, God tells them that, you, that they could eat of any tree, of any fruit of the garden. If it, they, it was a you may command. You can do this. You are free. And I want you to have control over, and I want you to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air that have these really beautiful commands. I want you, Adam, to work and cultivate. And Adam and Eve were there in the garden, and everything was as it was intended to be. But God gave them a command, you may, with one, you may not. And that may not is you can't eat from this tree. Okay? And we know the story. The serpent comes, and the first sin of humanity is this of pride. They desired to be like God. They wanted to be like God. They distrust, they distrusted God and they trusted the serpent who, would, who said to them, hey, if you'll do this, you can be like God as well. Well, something in that temptation drew Adam and Eve in, and they said, I want some of that. If I can be like God, I want that. And they made their decision. As they walked around free in that garden, they broke the law of God. They sinned against God and chose the wrong thing. The judgment of God fell upon them and they were to die. We know the story. Many of us do. Now, this is not just a story about Adam and Eve. This is a story about the human race. Adam was a type. You and I, the Bible teach, would have done the exact same thing. From birth, there is this longing within us to be something special. We are special, created in the image of God, but we want to be like God. And what what we see is, in our lives, from the times that we're young, we consistently display that we would have done the exact same thing Adam did. And the Bible teaches that's because Adam was a prototype that we are actually born into sin. Humanity is born into sin. Meaning, we are born into a world where we, one, will physically die, like Adam physically died. Is anybody here planning on not dying in this world? We will all die. It's 100% statistic. We will all die in this world. Physical death comes, but what the Bible teaches is that humanity is born spiritually dead, and it does not mean that they're not spiritual seekers, because spiritual seeking can happen through any sort of means and avenues. But it doesn't mean that they are spiritually alive. The Bible teaches that that humans, by very nature, are born sinful. So here is the idea: from birth. We like Adam, and we'll read these passages here in a minute that will confirm this from the Bible. We're Christians, we believe and love the Bible. This new judgment that came from God after the fall is you deserve death and also you are not free. You are in bondage. And so what comes from the fall to humanity and is still the case today for people in the world is that they, one, will physically die, two, they're spiritually dead. Spiritually they are a corpse in the morgue. They're not diseased or sick. They're spiritually dead, not spiritually discerned, not spiritually alive. They're in bondage to sin. They're in rebellion. Humanity is lost. And yet in the middle of that, one kind of anecdotal confirmation of this truth is that sinners deny this truth. There is a sort of lostness that is so deep, that's so lost, it's so dark, is that it can't even see that they're lost. There's a sort of sin that's so deep, the kind of sin that rejects that they're in sin. It's the ultimate sort of denial. And evidence that humans are actually sinful is how willing we are to reject that truth. How uncomfortable it makes us feel. And if you're not a believer in here this morning, this is the Christian message. This is why it's not... Uh, necessarily at first inviting because it confronts you with who you are spiritually dead you're in bondage you're not free in any way and yet you think you are you think you're not lost you think you're not blind you think you're not sinful you think you're not in bondage you think you're free you think you're whole you think you're complete this is the nature of humanity The the problem is, we don't really understand our sinfulness and the the glory of God. It plays out like this, okay? Uh, The problem with humanity is we don't understand how holy God is, and we don't recognize how great our sin against Him is. Now, we measure sin against someone or something based on the innocence of that someone, okay? Now, uh, we, we get angrier at someone sinning against someone we believe to be innocent, then we do get angry at somebody sinning against somebody we believe to be guilty. Meaning, if somebody is sinning against someone innocent, a child, rage fills up in our heart, does it not? We have the strong sense of justice. How could you do this? The story I've used before is a few years ago in Anna, there were a couple older ladies, librarians, and they got mugged uh, by a couple thugs, and they took their money and beat up these old women. And the outrage in the community was just, it was was universal outrage. Everybody was, I don't know if you remember this or not, we were thinking, how on earth? Now, we wouldn't have been as upset if we found out that it was their boss who apparently had had a history of being a jerk to the employees. Now, we wouldn't have said, yeah, that's okay, but we are angrier And we feel a sense of justice rising up or injustice rising up in us when we perceive that innocence was sinned against. And here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is holy, good, and just. And we don't perceive that, so we don't see our sin against Him as really that big of a deal. It's not really that big of a deal because His goodness and innocence is not in our minds ever before us, so we don't really perceive our sin against Him as all that big of a deal. This is the problem. This is our problem. We find ourselves in a deep, deep mess. Jeremiah 17.9 says this. You can write this down as well. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the human condition. Romans 3. We're going to read through this real quick, and you can actually turn there. Romans 3, verse 9 through 20. And I'm just going to read through this and, and pull out a couple of points, and then we're going to move through this the rest of the way pretty quickly this morning. Romans 3. Now, as you hear this, I want you to try to think about our world, or the world that, we're li- that we live in, and think about the human predicament, the human condition. Um, we have war, even though education has risen among the general population over the last 150 to 250 years. We still have war throughout the world. We still have crime. We still have, keep in mind, education continues to rise We still have pride, we have abuse, we have global slavery, still a problem with slavery in this world. We have greed, we have worship in all the wrong places. As we observe the world, even a more highly educated world, we can see that, my goodness, we still have a problem on our hands. And I'm going to read this, and it's going to explain our world. Why is the world the way it is? Well, here it explains this. Romans chapter 3, starting verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. You know what that means? That means no one's righteous, not a single person. You know what else that means? It means no one understands the things of God by nature. And it means that no one seeks for God. You know know why it means that? Because it says it. We're Christians. We gather around the Word. The Word gets to dictate the way we think and the way, hopefully, even we feel. This addresses the human condition out there. The way things are are the way things are because this is true. It really is helpful to understand why things are the way they are, why things are so screwed up. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And if we are quick to say, "Yeah, Jared, that's not true of me. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Here's the law according to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here's what the law does for every person out there in the world. The law exposes them In the same way it exposes us. It makes us feel uncomfortable to talk about. I feel way more comfortable talking about my glory. I feel way more comfortable talking about the things I'm good at. I, I feel way more comfortable people praising me. I feel uncomfortable being exposed and people knowing my sin. I feel uncomfortable knowing that God knows everything about me. Now, let me just ask you, and still, you may disagree with this, okay? You may, and again, this is God's words. So I'm not assuming that everybody in here is, is a believer. But if this is true, does it not make sense of the world that we live in? Does it not make sense of the news, that when we turn on the news and see the problems of the world? Does it not make sense? It's just people are in bondage. They're in sin. They just can't, they can't get out of it, even if they think they want to get out of it. It's like, I don't know where to turn or what to do. Pride? Envy, greed, this is whole government, even economic systems throughout the world are built on sin. Like This is the problem. So when we talk about redemption, we talk about redemption, it tells us about those who need to be redeemed, and it's all of this sort of thing. And the scriptures continue to open up and show more, and we could go on and on and on showing the sinful nature of humanity. And again, before we're quick to just say, no, that's not me. That's not me. Okay, and expose yourself as walking in the dark. Just take a second and consider. Okay, is that God says this is true. Is it true? Is it true about me? Does it explain the condition of the world? Okay. A lot of things to think about. This is our world. Murder, war, pride, abuse, slavery, greed. It can go on and on and on. So how, in the midst of that predicament, can a man or woman be made right with God? How can somebody in that mess that's caught up in this condition be rescued and made right with God? Well, we have redemption through His blood because it's not just us who are trapped in this problem and then it just ends there. The human sin is very, very real and we need a very real redemption. In fact, we have a very real redemption. We think about blood being spilled and we think about curses being broken. Sometimes we run to like things like, um, as we start to talk about these things, we run and think about, it's almost like uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. We start thinking about curses and all this kind of stuff and it almost seems like, you know, it's, it's kind of odd. But think about this. Is the sin in our world real? Is the hurt and pain in our world real? Do people really need to be punished for their sin? I mean, really. If a murderer murders somebody, should their... Doesn't justice demand the sense within us, justice demand? There should be, and, and we kind of differ on what that punishment should be, but we know that if a judge just said to a man who's proven guilty, I mean, unlike Stephen Avery, uh, proven guilty, if he is to be, okay, if, if the judge just says, hey, proven guilty, man, you're free to go, what would rise up in us? What if that man or woman murdered somebody in your family? Sin is very real and it's very personal. Unfortunately, God came up with a very real, very real redemption. There was real blood spilled. There was a real God man who died in the place of sinners. It's a very real redemption, very personal. Okay, let's work through this pretty quick. Um, okay, look with me. Again, in Ephesians chapter 1. And then I want you to flip. Hold your finger in Ephesians chapter 1. Flip to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Okay? Go there. Hebrews chapter 9. <laughs> Just so... Rich and beautiful. When we hear the word redemption, we need to know that the word redemption has its roots in the people of God, Israel, being redeemed out of Egypt. God redeemed Israel out of Egypt. They were pulled out of there. God raised up Pharaoh. If God didn't raise up Pharaoh, if God did not provide a way for Israel to be pulled out of slavery from Egypt, they would have never come out of Egypt. They were trapped, they couldn't get out on their own. But God provided a redemption. And God put uh, had them put blood uh, over the doorpost, and if anybody had blood over the doorpost, the firstborn would not die, and they would get to go out, and God used that Passover to bring the people of God out and f- to redeem them out of Israel. And when we talk about this word redemption, here's the idea that God has literally redeemed us out of slavery. He has pulled us out of the mess, pulled us out of a trap we could not escape. This is what God has done for us in Christ when we hear the word redemption. God God raised up a truer and better Moses to pull us out of our sin and our problems. Jesus redeemed us from even the very wrath of God. The human predicament is our sin, but also the human problem is that we have a just God who has declared that you will be punished for your sins. So the the human problem includes the wrath of Almighty God. And the wrath of God, just like in that video that we saw, it was coming down like the sun, and it was coming to burn up. It was coming to destroy. It was coming to punish those who deserve to be punished because it's not just the murderer. The Scriptures say us too are as murderers if we have hate in our heart for a brother. And the wrath of God is coming, and Jesus comes in His redemption, and He absorbs the wrath of God. Jesus comes and lives a perfect life. A perfect life. He obeys God perfectly. So the wrath of God would not come upon him unless God would decide to put it on him for a reason. Jesus came and in this perfect life, he did the will of his Father. He lived perfectly. And so there was no wrath for the Father to come to the Son. But here's the crazy thing about redemption. This was the redemption blood. This was the redemption price. Jesus is our ransom. And he goes to the cross, and the wrath of God comes down upon him. The judgment of God that was coming to us comes to him, and the judgment that, that Jesus earned comes to us. Hebrews says it like this, if you look with me, verses 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You hear that? Those who are redeemed by Christ are redeemed to an eternal redemption. It will not be partial. It will not be incomplete. It will be eternal. The work of Jesus for those who are redeemed is an eternal work. For if the blood, verse 13 continuing, the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes or a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who though being eternal Spirit, through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's what this says, that Jesus came and He provided a very real redemption for us. It was objective. It was not mythical. It was not a a, a type. It was actual. Jesus literally died to redeem us from the mess that we were in. That's what we need. So redemption tells us about our problems, but it also tells us about the glory of the Redeemer. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, for those who needed to be redeemed. Let me ask you this. Why on earth would He do it? Why on earth would the Father and His Son to redeem the very people who offended Him? I tell you, as a man who has a son, I have no idea. I can tell you confidently, if I was God, fortunately I'm not. I would go like this. If you're going to continue to reject me, and if you're going to continue to keep yourselves in bondage, if you're going to rebel against me, if you're going to sin against me, If you're going to want to be worshipped yourself, then you can go on as you please. But not God. He provides a redemption. Once for all, we have been redeemed with an eternal redemption. Now here's what this means, fortunately, and flip back to Ephesians and we're going to get into forgiveness. Here's what this means. If you're a Christian, you've been pulled out uh, out of the muck and the mire of sin. He has redeemed you out of it. And that means for us that we fight sin. We don't continue to stay in it. He's broken the power of sin in our lives through this redemptive work. That means it's not ours anymore. Stop holding on to sin. Quit it. Jared, fight it. War against it. Don't tiptoe around it. Don't act like it's okay to live in it. Get out of it. Find people around you to pray, Jesus, you have redeemed me with an eternal redemption. I will not be satisfied living in the sin that you purchased me out of. It's immensely practical. The spiritual blessing for us actually reminds us to walk away from sin. He purchased us out of it. It's not ours to hold on to anymore. Let's be done with it. Let's fight it. Let's war against it. Let's confess it. Let's repent of it. Let's turn from it. Let's walk away from it. Jesus has done this great work, but here we get into forgiveness. And I want to look at this, the second part of Ephesians chapter 7. Look at this. He is not just, not only do we have redemption through His blood, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. And I want you to hear this. As we thought about, okay, we've already done this, as we thought about our sins this week, and as we thought about Jesus forgiving us, I want you to think about that. That in Christ... Your transgressions are forgiven. It's more than calling in Nashville, Illinois, and emailing a ticket, excuse me, emailing a registration, and them saying, Hey, you're good. This is all of my sin weighed against me, weighed in the balances. And because of the work, the just work of God on my behalf, I have my transgressions forgiven. All of them that I am forgiven in Christ. What a spiritual blessing indeed that a past event that happened 2,000 years ago had future implications and it washed me clean from my sins. I got a ticket that was dismissed. The punishment was 125. When it was dismissed, I was grateful. When I got all of my sins forgiven, how much more grateful should I be? Your sins are forgiven. What incredibly good news. The punishment of sin, of my sin, was an eternity in hell. And instead of hell, that's the punishment, in Christ, we get an eternal inheritance. I mean, the contrast is astounding, what God has done for us in Christ. We need to go to Hebrews now, flip back to Hebrews, and we're going to finish up in Hebrews, and it's going to shine light yet again on the forgiveness, not just the redeeming work of God, but the forgiving work of God. Hebrews 9, 24-28. Here's what it says. For Christ has entered. Christ has entered. Not into holy places made with hands, which are copy Copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, not his own, for then he would have offered to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is. He, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for Him. A few things I want you to see. First, verse 24, Jesus appears right now, this spiritual blessing of forgiveness of sin. Because Jesus forgave your sin, He appears in the presence of God on our behalf. He, right now, before the throne of God, according to verse 24, because of what He has done for us, He appears in the presence of God on our behalf. And friends, you know what that gives us? That gives us some mighty, powerful security. We have a King Jesus who is appearing on our behalf. That right now, on behalf of Hank, on behalf of me, on behalf of Jordan, on behalf of us in this room, we have somebody standing in there on our behalf. Think about that. On your behalf, somebody in there. Jesus for you. Not only that, verse 26, Jesus did this once for all, that He would put away Sin by the sacrifice of Himself. In verse 26, Jesus put away your sin, all of it. Not some of it. He wasn't waiting till you would ask for forgiveness for it. He put all of it on you. Unconditionally for you. If He has died for you, that means your sins are forgiven. All of them. Forgiven. Not only that, in verse 28, look at this. When He comes back, because Christ will come back, he will not come back. Not, he will come back not to deal with sin. Get that in verse 28. He's coming back not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. So we have nothing to be afraid of when Christ returns. We have nothing to, He's not coming back to deal with our sin, friends. He's dealt with it. He's coming back to catch us up in the sky. He's coming back for sons and daughters who have been fully forgiven, not partially forgiven, fully forgiven. Look at verse 10, chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, and I want you to see this. Most of us and most Christians in the world live in verses 1 through 4, and the forgiveness of God, the spiritual blessing, makes no daily impact on their life because many people live right here, And they do not understand the abiding forgiveness that's over them because of the work of Jesus. Here's where most people in America live. Most Christians in America live. Hebrews 10, 1-4. Here it is. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually afforded or offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins. But the sacri- these sacrifices, there's a rema- remainder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is where most people in their Christian experience stay. In this wobbling back and forth, thinking God's pleased with me, He's angry with me. My sins are forgiven today because I asked for them, but my sins for tomorrow are not forgiven for me. And this spiritual blessing remains an untapped spiritual blessing because for you it's all about your performance today or tomorrow. It's all about how well I did last week. God's happy with me because I read my Bible this week. This is the condition of so many people who love Jesus. They live in this old way of thinking as as the days of old where it's like my sins for yesterday are forgiven, but my sins are not forgiven to tomorrow. Tomorrow's sins aren't forgiven until I ask for them and feel sorry for them and, and confess them. And there's constant fear about sins being forgiven. And it's this condition of back and forth of, God, I'm good with you if I'm doing good this week, and I'm, I'm bad with you if I'm, not doing, uh, if I'm not doing good this week. But oh, fortunately, in Christ, this spiritual blessing is seen in verses 5-14. through 14. Look with me, and I want you to read very carefully. I want you to hear this. Okay, look with me in this verse. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of your book, verse 8, when He said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Jesus, behold, I have come to do your will. He, Jesus, does away with the first in order to establish the second. Keep reading with me. And by that will, Jesus' will of obeying his Father, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. First, the priest in the Old Testament sinned. Jesus did not. He did the will of His Father. Verse 9 and 10 tell us that the work of Jesus was on our behalf. Because it says, and by that will, Jesus' will to obey His Father, we have been sanctified. We are the beneficiaries of the life that Jesus lived. He lived it in our place For us, that we can be counted as law keepers before God. And then He died once for all. And then in verse 14 it says, by a single offering, Jesus' offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, by Jesus' death on the cross, His life, death, and resurrection, I want you to hear this, all of your sins are forgiven, every one of them. And the basic truths of our faith, for some of us, have never settled deep down in our soul, and we've never thought about that. We thought about our sins only being forgiven if I was, if I really was brokenhearted enough. Here is an outside act done for you that declares that in Christ you are forgiven. He has perfected those who are being <laughs> sanctified once. For all. And he did this. Flip over to Ephesians and then we'll be done. Andy, you can go ahead and come come forward. He did this according to verse second part of seven and the last part of eight, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Two more spiritual blessings. Last week we learned about the blessing of predestination. This week we learn about the blessing of redemption and forgiveness. Why? Would God do this for people who were in such a mess? Because He is lavishly graceful. Because in His wisdom and insight, He wanted to. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that You would work this in us, uh, that You would help us. Maybe today, for the first time, we receive forgiveness. We receive uh, just freedom to understand the forgiveness that's in Jesus. (sighs) That You're not holding back on us. And as we sing, Jesus, about Your work, I pray that it would come from our heart, that there would be joy, that we would know that we are forgiven in Christ, that You have redeemed us out of the mess that we were in, and You have saved us and set us free. Jesus, to Your glory and honor, we pray. Amen. Let's worship.